from PRX. Stew. Stew. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about I'm not pen. being sniffy. I think I'm you a, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... If you think he's a genius, tell me a story that illustrates it. You know, we, we are uh, <laughs> an imperfect species. Learn to play with one another in this hall... Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. For more than 40 years, the director Steven Spielberg has been one of the main architects of the modern movie experience. He has scared us out of the water. You're going to need a bigger boat. Taken us on adventures with a Pulp Fiction hero. I hate snake shock! And introduced us to friendly alien life forms. I'll be right here. But even as he's entertained us, he's also helped us look closely at our past and present in his films. At slavery, technology, Israel and Palestine, various wars. I don't know anything about Ryan. I don't care. Man means nothing to me. It's just a name. But if finding him so he can go home. If that earns me the right to get back to my wife, well, then that's my mission. Steven Spielberg now has this really large, rich, and intriguing body of work. And there's probably no better fellow filmmaker to examine his career than Susan Lacey. For 30 years, she has been exploring the work of well-known artists for the PBS series American Masters, which she created. Her 200 subjects before Spielberg ranged from F. Scott Fitzgerald to Ella Fitzgerald. Susan has left PBS to join HBO documentary films and just finished her first film there. No surprise, this loving, extremely in-depth documentary biography of another American master who didn't even formally study his craft. I tried very hard to get into USC film school, and I just didn't have the grades to get in. So Universal became my film school. Spielberg talked with Lacey for 30 hours over many, many different sessions and gave her access to almost everybody he worked with. The result, Spielberg, starts airing on HBO in October, and Susan Lacey is here with me now. Welcome to Studio 360. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So, first of all, let's talk about why you left the warm, virtuous embrace of public broadcasting (laughs) uh, to go to HBO. Assuming the answer is... You don't have to worry about money, fundraising, budgets. It's all good now. Oh, you hit the nail on the head, actually. (laughs) Uh, I hadn't thought about leaving. I really thought I would go down with my boots on, as I say, (laughs) in American Masters, because it meant so much to me. And it was such blood, sweat, and tears every year to breathe life into this series and keep it alive um, because I really had to raise money every year to make the kind of films I wanted to make. But I, I started talking with Richard Plepler at HBO. Who runs and, the joint. Who runs the joint. And is a wonderful guy. And he said, aren't you tired of raising money? There you go. And He knew what to say. And I thought, that's why he's the head of HBO. <laughs> yes. I mean, he went right to that soft spot. And I went, you know, after 35 years, <laughs> I think he might be right. I yeah. think I'm tired of it. Yeah. So, so for your first uh, documentary after American Masters, how did you decide, oh, 
Steven Spielberg is is the guy I want to do. Well, I'd always wanted to do Steven Spielberg. Yeah? <laughs> I mean, I'm a fan uh, of his, and I'd always wanted to do Steven, and I had met him uh, because we'd interviewed him for several different American Masters documentaries, and we had a lot of fun. He enjoyed it, and I enjoyed him. And it was just, you know, sometimes that just happens. You know, there's a, 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 a spark. Yeah. But I didn't expect... I would be able to have that much time. I mean, it never occurred to me. I thought I'd maybe have four interviews. Yeah. Uh, no, he's in very many outfits. So I, I saw <laughs> how many times you talked to him. I think at least 13. Yeah. Uh, uh, probably a little bit more. I can't remember exactly how many. How, how long did the film take to make? Two years, you know, because I also did 87 other interviews. Uh, yes. Everyone, everyone is in this film. Everyone he's ever worked with, people he's been friends with, it's extraordinary. Did anybody say, nah, I don't want to talk to you? Not a single soul. Really? That doesn't mean that everything lined up right away. I mean, to get on DiCaprio's schedule and Tom Cruise's schedule and Daniel Day-Lewis' schedule is not easy. You think of that young kid in Arizona in the desert watching movies, watching television incessantly. It's a pretty fantastic Hollywood story. That was Leonardo DiCaprio. And, and, and did you ever feel like, okay, enough saying how great and brilliant and nice and blessed he is. Somebody say something mean. Well, first of all, Kurt, I have to say I started every interview by saying I don't want to hear the word genius. <laughs> yes. I don't want to hear amazing. Yeah. I don't want to hear fantastic. Yeah. I don't want to hear what a nice guy he is. Yes. If you think he's a genius, I want yeah. you to tell me a story yeah. that illustrates Good it. for you. Yeah. So you never hear the word genius ever in this film. <laughs> I, I really tried to get people to talk about what he's like to work with. What is the magic of his filmmaking? How is he as a director? How is his understanding of film? Right. Did he set any ground rules like, we're not going to talk about that? No. Really? one. Huh. And I don't think he knew what kind of film I was going to make. And he's the first to admit it, that he does not have a particularly dramatic, personal story. Right. And not much transformation, really. No, no, it's not. I mean, it's a. He knew what he wanted to do from the time he was ten, right? And that's what he's done, right? Um, and yes, there was a a first marriage. Uh, his parents got divorced. Right. That had a huge traumatic effect on him, right? But there is a personal story in there, yeah. and and I said I will find it in the work. I did know, however, that I was going to open the film with Lawrence of Arabia. A movie came into town called Lawrence of Arabia, and everybody was talking about it. And when the film was over, I wanted to not be a director anymore because the bar was too high. That was great. Yeah, and yeah. I knew the minute he told me that story, I knew I was going to open with that. Of course. But I didn't tell him that. Yeah. And uh, so when he saw the film for the first time, I think he said something like, pretty bold of you to open a film about a filmmaker with somebody else's movie. <laughs> I said, yeah, and he said, I love it. Yeah. It's about inspiration. Yes. It's about what he aspired to. Yes, and about what you see when you're an adolescent, right. Right. you know, which is, affects us all. One of the great parts, of many great parts of this film of yours are these, a lot of these 8-millimeter films that he made as a kid. That They're amazing, um, aren't they? They're totally amazing. Did, did he have them all? Yeah, he has them all. He keeps a pretty good archive. I'll bet. Uh, but he's very he's very protective of that art. Right. All that footage you see in the film of him hanging out with with the Paul Schrader and De Palma and I've never seen any of that Luke, either. Even his own staff hasn't seen most of it. That was his stuff. That all all of it shot by him. Martin Scorsese, filmmaker of Hit Street. This is Brian De Palma, loud as ever. 
But the, but the films he made as a kid, they're, they're good and ambitious, and especially that one that is the Close Encounters prequel. Fire, firelight. Yeah, Firelight. Firelight, get down. Uh, with special effects of, you know, alien craft. Amazing. Uh, totally amazing. Yeah. How old was he when he made that? Well, Firelight is probably 15. <sighs> wow. He, and and I didn't know, and I guess I should have or could have, that he was this true prodigy, that he was hired as a teenager to direct television shows. I'm Marcus Welby. Steve Kiley. Marcus Welby and Owen Marshall and... and uh, you Wasn't know, that surprising? Yes, totally. And these kind of run-of-the-mill, oh, the, you know, stuff you didn't really watch or care about in the late 60s and early 70s. Did you wa- go back and watch any of his episodes? Oh, yeah. Of course I did. Are they special, or are they just like uh, every other Owen Marshall, Marcus Welby? No. They, there's camera techniques that are really unusual. I mean, he did the pilot episode for Columbo. Oh, you're visiting friends in San Diego? He has a place there, a cabin. Oh, away for the weekend. Gee, that's nice. But huh. if you look at that, you that's see camera work right? that... I mean, I wish I had Peter Falk were around because yeah. I, I had read an interview that he did where he said he knew from the very beginning that this young kid was special because he was setting the camera up across the street to shoot into the office window where he was standing. I mean, that wasn't typical. And by the way, I don't think that it made him very popular. Right. I think he was this young kid and there were all these, you know, crews that Who just wanted to do it the way and we do it. And, they yeah. wanted, and, and, and I think they thought he was kind of, you know, hot shot, thought a lot of himself. And he had to prove himself, yeah. and it was not easy. I don't think it was a fun experience. Right. So you talk a lot, and people like Tom Hanks and, and, and Scorsese talk in the film, that is, about what, what this phenomenal visual cinematic sense that he has deep in his brain. Stephen wanted Saving Private Ryan to be a different kind of very tactile and personal war movie. And then it opened up, and all the powers of physical movie making went berserk. There's an almost idiot savant quality to some of his talent that is impossible to describe. When he's shooting, he already sees the edited sequence in his head. How you can do that, I don't know. And he said it was totally natural to him. He said, I can't explain. I was a terrible student. But that is instinctual. He absolutely sees the edited sequence, so he knows exactly what he's shooting and why he's shooting it that way. That is very rare. And even other directors will tell you that's how rare that is. He he gets really good performances out of actors, but you don't hear much in your film about, like, how he deals with actors, how that works. (laughs) He he says he just gets out of their way, but uh, which is... And Actually, right a very people, smart thing to do yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if, if you've got great actors. Yeah. What the gift is, is casting. Yeah. He casts brilliantly. Yeah. But I, that's why I included that sequence with Liam Neeson talking about the cigarette. Yes. Stephen's not a smoker, but in the close-ups, he would start to tell me how to smoke. He'd say, okay, uh, you're looking at the table, take a drag of your cigarette. No, no, do it again. Okay, and I take her hand away very, very slowly. So he was basically telling me how to breathe. And I remember sharing it with Ben Kingsley later on that night or the next day. I said, Ben, I just, I don't want to be a puppet. And I remember Ben so well. He said, a great conductor needs a good soloist. So just trust that. And that's what I did. I just opened myself for Stephen, you know? No, they were good, the, the actors, because they were basically saying he's a genius without, as you say, using the G word. Uh, I said, give me an example of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Show me. Yeah. Tell me. The making of Schindler's List, you could make a 
documentary about that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. He threw out everything he had relied on his entire filmmaking career. He did handheld as much right. as possible. He's running with that camera. Not to mention black and white. And not to mention black and white. And and think about the risk. I mean, honest to God, a three-and-a-half-hour black-and-white movie about the Holocaust was not guaranteed to be box right. office success. Right. But it was important to do. But it also took him 10 years to get there. You mean not to get it made, but in his head. In his head, no. And he tried to give it away. He tried to, uh, he gave it to Marty Scorsese. He said, you make this film. And Marty thought about it for a long time, did some work on it, did some thinking. He handed it back. He said, this is your tribe, not mine. And I think they traded in uh, Cape Fear. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Spielberg was going to make Cape Fear? Mm-hmm. Interesting. And it was a po- totally appropriate trade. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Marty was the right guy to make Cape Fear, uh-huh. and it was it was destiny that he was going to make Schindler's yeah. List. It's, but it's interesting how he avoided it for so long. Right. Despite the fact that people think he's a safe filmmaker, uh-huh. he's not. He, he takes a lot of risks. I am the president of the United States of America, clothed in immense power. I mean, yeah. look at the difference of Lincoln from the vastness of A Close Encounters. <laughs> I asked him once what was his favorite scene, and I didn't get this into the movie, but it was the little boy opening the door. He really understood how this was seen by a child, the wonder of it. They weren't afraid. That fear wasn't in there. It's the unknown out there that uh, is, is drawing this little boy and his curiosity. I think Stephen very much identifies with that. When's your birthday? I never had a birthday. You know, there are some films he's made that I really love that I wasn't able to include in the in my film. One of them is AI. And, and it was a Stanley Kubrick project. And Stanley Kubrick-ish. Yeah. Stephen was very criticized for the closing scene in AI where the little robot boy is, ends up in bed with his mother. He gets to recreate his one great day before he turns into dust. So David went to sleep too. And for the first time in his life, he went to that place where dreams are born. And he said that was in Stanley Kubrick's script. He got blamed for this highly sentimental ending. And what wasn't in Stanley Kubrick's script were the, the, the gritty stuff, the violent stuff. Stephen added. So, uh, you know, there is a, a certain um, idea that he's a highly sentimental filmmaker. Right. And sentiment certainly enters his film. And he, There's no co- way and around again, it. he cops to that. Yeah, and he totally cops to yeah. that. But in that instance of AI, it wasn't his. It wasn't his. Um, th- there is a criticism of Spielberg, which you uh, talk about in the film, uh, which is that with Jaws and Indiana Jones, uh, he he ruined Hollywood. He ruined. He put the kibosh on what was happening in the seventies of the gritty artistic films that his buddies uh, were were making. And uh, do you buy that? Sure, but I don't put it at his feet. He he made he happened to make extremely successful films of a certain kind. Of a certain kind, and the studios are the ones who who said, "Oh, we're going to do that again and again and again and <laughs> yes, again." Yes. Um, and they built franchises out of them. Now he participated in that, but. I, I do not in any way put at his feet or George Lucas's feet that they ruined Hollywood right. with the blockbuster right. film. I mean, they, they didn't know. Right. But what he aspired to was different from all those other guys. They wanted to make gritty, independent right. films. Right. He wanted to be a studio guy. 
he'd miss it. There's a whole section I had to take out of the film where he talks about how he really um, modeled himself after the the studio contract directors of the 40s. I want that section of the film, Susan. Me too. (laughs) Me too. I was sorry I had to take it out. Um, He modeled himself after the workhorse, he called it the workhorse studio directors of the 40s. Like Capra. Well, he didn't even talk so much about Howard Hawks. Oh, yeah, right. John Ford. Right. And who gave you leave to be kissing me? So you can talk. Yes, I can, I will, and I do. And, and I was also fascinated with how much he references those directors in his movies in sly, little, subtle ways. And I had whole sections about that. Really? Yeah. Uh, man, oh, man, I put out the, put out the long version. Okay, we got to get that game. <laughs> HBO, we got to do the long tail version. Excellent. No, we've accomplished something here. Uh, Susan Lacey, uh, thank you so much. This was terrific. Okay, thank you. I enjoyed it. Great. All right. Spielberg will premiere on HBO on October 7th. Coming up, music performed by symphony orchestras sounds sublime from the 17th row, but... On stage? Woodwind players are constantly complaining about the percussion and and the brass. We try to be somewhat courteous of our neighbors, but you have to do your job. If you're going to work the jackhammer, you know, what can you do? (laughs) Except do your job well. Why you don't want to be too close to the action at the concert hall. That's next in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. The seating arrangement for all the musicians in an orchestra, a symphony orchestra, is designed, of course, to make the music sound best to the audience sitting out in the hall. Which is one reason the percussion section is in the back, where it won't drown out the flutes and violas. But that seating arrangement is definitely not optimized for the listening pleasure of the musicians. To try to hear just how different a symphony sounds when you're on stage, Gideon Brower took his recording kit to the great Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles. What's it sound like to play with the L.A. Philharmonic at Walt Disney Concert Hall? What's it feel like to be up there? A few months ago, I sat on stage with the orchestra during a final rehearsal of a program of pieces by Russian masters, Rachmaninoff, Prokofiev, and Skriabin. Milling around in their street clothes, the musicians look more like the slightly scruffy faculty of a small liberal arts college than the highly trained members of a world-renowned ensemble. Until, that is, they begin to play. For section percussionist Perry Dryman, what you hear on stage depends entirely on where you sit. The stage has got 101 acoustical microclimates. Every seat is different on that stage. To the audience listening in the hall, Sergei Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 3 with guest pianist Daniil Trifonov sounds like this. From where I'm sitting behind the first violin section, far to the left of conductor Gustavo Dudamel, the strings sound more dominant, like this. Again, here it is from the audience. 
here it is on the stage. From where I sit, the featured pianist at the front of the stage is far less audible. The angle of the grand piano's lid and the acoustics of the hall project the sound forward into the audience, not back to the orchestra. Bass clarinetist David Howard says he often can't hear a featured violinist or singer at all. Concert goers will say after the end of the concert, wasn't he or she wonderful? I'll say, well, I'll take your word for it. If you're even further back, like percussionist Perry Dryman, you may need to rely on your eyes more than your ears to know when to come in. We use visual cues. I'll watch the pianist's hands uh, or a violinist's bow. Classical music critic Timothy Mangan says that the string section where I'm sitting is the heart of the modern orchestra, which evolved from string ensembles performing in royal salons and private homes. The winds and the brass were slowly added on in greater and greater numbers. Then more percussion started getting used and the instruments were more equalized. Composers started changing the instruments that were in the orchestra. The 20th century became open season for what an orchestra is. The seating arrangement of modern orchestras is fairly standard, with the loudest instruments, brass and percussion, at the back, then woodwinds, and then the strings nearest the audience. They need to be in a group to get that nice plush sound, and so you have them in front. Most of the time, they have the featured lead role in a piece. And then the other players are supporting players, sometimes very important supporting players, but they do support the main action in the strings. The LA Philharmonic uses what's called European seating, with the first and second violin sections facing each other at the front of the stage. Occasionally, they'll use American seating, with both sections massed together on the conductor's left. Tim Mangan says the choice of seating changes the sound for the listener. When you have the violins all grouped on the left-hand side of the stage, that becomes a much more powerful violin sound. And it can hold up to a lot more winds and brass. When they are apart, left and right, the sound is more spread out. You can see into the orchestra with your ears. You can hear a greater clarity. Once in a while, you'll see more unusual configurations, says L.A. Phil librarian Kazue McGregor. If it's a very jazzy piece, they may want the brass in the center and the orchestra split so that you've got the big band sound right in the center. For the second piece, Scythian Suite by Sergei Prokofiev, I moved to the other side of the stage, close to the brass. While the piece sounds like this in the hall, to me, it sounds more like this. Again, the audience hears this. Where I sit, I hear this. Sitting that close to the trumpets and trombones, you realize just how much they affect the musicians directly in front of them. Music writer Tim Mangan. Woodwind players are constantly complaining about the percussion and, and the brass. We try to be somewhat courteous of our neighbors, but you have to do your job. James Miller is the associate principal trombonist for the fill. If you're going to work the jackhammer, you know, what can you do? <laughs> Except do your job well. 
if you're sitting in front of the trumpets, if you're sitting in front of the percussion, if you're you know, within the, a certain radius of the piccolo player and you're not wearing ear protection, it's going to be difficult. David Howard is one of the many musicians who wear custom-fit earplugs provided by the orchestra. Perry Dryman wears them too. I don't know what they call them, but they, there's no loss of sound, just decibels. Creating a blend of sound that works for the audience, shaping it like an engineer at a mixing board, that's the job of the conductor. And much of the work is done before the performance in rehearsal. Because he's a little bit too loud. He's a dialogue with the piano. The conductor also tunes for the hall itself. The balance of instruments that sounds right in one venue might need adjustment for another. For every concert hall that we go to on tour, we have an acoustic rehearsal where the conductor is fine-tuning, like, in this hall, brass, I want you less. Oboe, I want you more. Kazue McGregor recalls that when the Philharmonic first moved into Disney Hall in 2003, there was an initial tuning period, not of the hall, but of the orchestra. The wisdom was simply, just wait. Let the musicians adjust. Let them feel the hall and learn to play with one another in this hall. No structural changes were going to be made inside the hall for a certain period of time. The last piece on the program is The Poem of Ecstasy by Alexander Scriabin. For this one, I moved to a seat directly above and behind the percussion section. There's plenty of percussion in this piece. Cymbals, orchestra bells, tam-tam, triangle, even a good-sized church bell played by Perry Dryman. Once you start playing that, the world kind of disappears. <laughs> it really does. So where is the best seat in the house at Walt Disney Concert Hall? Violinist Shelley Bovier likes her own seat near the front of the stage. I get all that sound coming to me, and I can hear well. Trombonist James Miller is happy at the back of the stage. Visually, the back is great. Like, right in the center, you've got everything. Critic Tim Mangan likes to sit about a dozen rows back in the audience. I feel that I need to sit in front of the orchestra, a little bit away from it. Orchestra librarian Kazue McGregor agrees it's exciting being in the action, but the best seat in the house for listening is probably not on the stage itself, but out in the house. I envy the audience tremendously because really, truly, the audience is getting to hear the entire effect of what the composer intended. That story was produced by Gideon Brower. Another version originally appeared on The Frame, a show produced by public radio station KPCC in Los Angeles. Coming up, why do we like outrageous satirical truth-telling so much when it comes out of the mouths of cartoon characters? You always hear about mass shootings affecting other people's movie openings, but you never think they're going to affect your movie opening. Raphael Bob Waxberg, the creator of the animated Netflix hit BoJack Horseman, joins me to talk about the challenges of making a very dark comedy starring talking animals. That's next in Studio 360. Studio 360. I realized I tend to like my TV comedy 
the same way I like my coffee, which is very dark, but also sweetened. Which, I guess, is why I'm such a fan of BoJack Horseman, which is this animated series on Netflix about a washed-up 90s sitcom star living in the Hollywood Hills who is a horse. This is my last chance to make people love me again. If this goes out, everybody's going to see the real me. Now, I spend a lot of time with the real me, and believe me, nobody's going to love that guy. If you'll excuse me, I need to go take a shower so I can't tell if I'm crying or not. That is Will Arnett as the voice of Bojack. His character, like most of the characters in the show, has an animal head on a humanoid body. Bojack is a horse man. The series' fourth season just debuted on Netflix. And among other things, I'm fascinated by how it strikes this balance between edgy existential themes and subjects and goofy jokes. Raphael Bob Waxberg is the creator of BoJack Horseman, and he's here. Raphael, welcome to Studio 360. Hi, Kurt. How are you? I'm well, and thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Um, so every uh, episode of BoJack Horseman is rich with uh, show business references. Uh, one that I want to play for our listeners, because, of course, they are public media nerds, uh, many of them, is your character Diane's ringtone. Here, here it is. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Sarah Koenig. This is one ringtone told over the course of several rings. <laughs> and the story it's telling you is to answer your phone. Hello? <laughs> uh, that's Sarah Koenig, uh, the host of, of Serial, uh, the great podcast. But that's not all. You've also had uh, Ira Glass and Terry Gross and Audie Cornish uh, do ringtones. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- uh, is that because – are you virtue signaling or do you just like public radio? Uh- <laughs> well, you know, more more than uh, me liking public radio is it, it felt like a great uh, way to explain character, and that Diane likes public radio, the character right. who has all these ringtones, ah, um, and especially sense. you know the, the the first time we did it. Uh, was in season one with Ira Glass, and we were trying to, you know, kind of show something about this character, explain who she was, and we thought, uh, you know, what what is more declarative than having a, a ringtone right. that you got by being a, a, a contributing member of of public radio? Yeah, the the new season. This is the fourth season. People have always said, mm-hmm. "Oh, BoJack uh, Horseman is a dark comedy," and and now the the line on this season is, "Ooh, even darker." Uh, people can decide for themselves. But here is a clip uh, from an episode uh, in this new season about uh, gun violence affecting uh, studio decision-making. Oh, oh, that is not good. Okay, everybody set a Google alert for mass shooting. Can't keep getting caught off guard like this. This is so sad. You always hear about mass shootings affecting other people's movie openings, but you never think they're going to affect your movie <laughs> opening. <laughs> Of course, my thoughts and prayers go out to the victims and their families. Of course, yeah. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. I love that. I love the thoughts and <laughs> prayers. Um, so, uh, I mean, is the appeal to you of, oh, I'm going to use this goofy animals, humans, cartoon venue to deal with these real issues? Or, or is it, oh, it's it's funnier to have animals dealing with these real issues? I mean, is, is are you serving the comedy or are you serving the issues? I think I think both actually, and I think I think those those things kind of go hand in hand a little bit, and then in some ways, it's easier to talk about these very uh, serious issues 
through the lens of these these wacky cartoon animals. And I think the show business uh, setting kind of gives us that too, because this industry is so over the top and outlandish. Uh, you know, the, the box office bottom line is very uh, over the top and silly, but also has a germ of truth to it. Right. Um, and so I think the fact that we can go to these silly, sillier outlandish places allows us to comment on this real stuff in a way that perhaps if we were more straight ahead, it would feel almost like after-school special-ish or, right. um, you know, uh, maudlin or, or indulgent. And I, and I think, like that clip in particular, somehow with animal, cartoon animals doing it, you can get away with more. It's pretty detestable. And if it's, you know, humans doing it live action, you kind of don't like those people. But when it's like a cute pink cat, it feels a little lighter. Like, you know, it, it doesn't quite feel as heavy or as, frankly, evil. Right. You cut slack for the pink cats. <laughs> right. Uh, every, uh, I mean, give me an example of a joke or, or, or subject or, that you wrote and then decided, nah, over the line, too grim, too, too dark. Sure. Because um, we, you know, we, we are Im- imperfect, uh, <laughs> an imperfect species, um, television writers. Here's, you know, a joke we took out in, in, last, in season three. Um, you know, somebody had, you know, like an, an embarrassing news cycle. And then there, we, had, we had a line that someone was trying to comfort him. And said something along the lines of, yeah, that, w- that was all over the news. You know, uh, good thing it's not today because that, that, that cop shot that black kid. You're really lucky that cops can't stop shooting black kids. Um, which, you know, the intention behind the joke was, yeah, we are on the side of the black kids saying, hey, cops, uh-huh. stop, stop shooting them. Like, this, this is an anti-cop joke. This is an anti-power joke. This is an anti-authority joke. Um, and it's very easy to make that intellectual argument in favor of it. But as we were looking at it and as we were talking about it, it felt like, well, but who is making this joke and, and who is going to hear it and who is our audience? And, and even... Making a joke about it, even to say like this is an this is an, an anti this happening joke, it still felt like well, yeah, but we're also like digging up this scar that is very fresh and this wound um, that is 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 very um, active, and maybe this is mm-hmm. not our joke mm-hmm. to make. Right. No, it's a really interesting question with with satire and and edgy satire because people don't realize how much of that is drawing your lines because there are no obvious bright lines and and everybody right. has to draw it for themselves at a particular moment. You know, I, I think they're, they're it's good to have, you know, um general guidelines for yourself like the idea of of aiming to punch up and not punch down. Um I think is a, is a good uh rubric for thinking about it. Um obviously it's not a a failsafe because you know, there is no such thing as straight up or straight down. You know, these 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 uh, oppression exists upon many different axes. I guess it's. It, I mean, it's a problem that's been a problem for television comedy writers since Archie Bunker. Like, oh no 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 no, mm-hmm. we're, we're we're disapproving exactly. of this racism. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's a question that has not been satisfyingly answered to me, and I don't know if there is an answer. I think I think it is it is good to keep that conversation open because I think there are you know people who write for television who are more than happy to wash their hands of that conversation yes. and say, no, no, you don't just, you just don't get my satire. Right. I'm on the right side of this. Right. And I, I kind of feel like, well, if, you know, if your heart is in the right place, that doesn't necessarily counteract any damage you are doing. And I, and I don't, you know, I don't think we should be censoring people or, 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 or mandating, you know, certain topics or off limits or certain languages off limits. But I, I think it does put the responsibility on television creators to think about what they're doing. Um, 
You also, in addition to creating the show, uh, do a voice of Charlie the Tree Frog. I do. I do a handful of voices. Yes, Charlie's my most prominent one. He's the intern of a n- different character called Princess Caroline. Here's here is uh, Charlie. In the meantime, help yourself to an intern, one of the rising stars at our company, Charlie Witherspoon. Hello, I yo. Oh, sorry, my my hands are really sticky. <laughs> Oh, God, am I blowing this? Charlie was the editor of the Harvard Lampoon. That other voice uh, is Stephen Colbert's. Um, so are, is, that, is that some caricature version of the weenie that, the inner weenie that is you? <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I, I will say that, you know, uh, Charlie in, in, is very much an object of ridicule for the show, um, but I've been sh- shocked and delighted by how many people see themselves in Charlie. Yeah. That he is, you know, he 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 can't do anything right. He continues to fail upwards. His career is going great, um, but he just constantly is a well of neuroses and and um, which I, I do think connects to a lot of people. And I will say myself as well. You know, that kind of that uh, imposter syndrome feeling of like, oh God, I, everyone's gonna see that I'm not really good at this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Um, Thank you. Um, uh, the, 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 this 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 obsessive attack you do on a Harvard Lampoon uh, comes up many times <laughs> again in in season three uh, when Bojack uh, meets his his writing partner, uh, a hamster uh, named Cuddly Whiskers. Yes, Jeffrey Wright voices. Here is that clip. Do you want to just tell me about the show? I hear it's great. I've worked on great shows my whole career. Great <laughs> shows are easy. I didn't become president <laughs> of the Lampoon so I could make great shows. Harvard Lampoon. Yeah, I got it. I'm trying to do something different here. Something that lasts. Huh. Think about it. And if you're ready to finally stop being the horse from horsing around, send me an email. Cuddlywhiskers at harvard.edu. That's H-A-R. I got it. As an alumnus of the Harvard Lampoon, I find all of those incredibly good and funny. And I guess yeah, yeah, that's what that's what you have to do when you go to Bard. I guess really, right? I guess <laughs> you gotta take take them down. Um, you know, it's 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 funny because when um, Stephen Colbert, who played uh, who plays uh, Charlie Witherspoon's father, Mister Witherspoon, who you heard in that first clip, mm-hmm. uh, you know, has the line about he was the editor of the Harvard Lampoon, and he asked me, oh, uh, you know, a, a bunch of your writers uh, went to Harvard, huh? And I had to be like, actually, n- no, <laughs> the, the opposite. We're 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 making fun of that that trope and that that idea that people come out of Harvard with like a rubber stamp in Hollywood and kind of you know get get uh, channeled directly to the to the nearest sitcom writers yeah. room. And there is a there is a mafia of them out there. It is. It's true. And it's I. I don't really have beef with them or you and, and 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 good good for you and I think that's it's wonderful that you've you've all found that success um but to me it does feel a little odd this fascination with yes. Harvard no oh, of course they're 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 brilliant they went to Harvard yeah. like I've I, I've known some real dummies who went to Harvard me so, too me yes, too dude. They're, they're, I'm sure you you more than anyone yeah. would know the people yeah. the people who go to Harvard are the first to be like oh my god no yeah Harvard's full of morons exactly so we asked you to tell us uh give us a list of some of the, th- the shows and, mm-hmm. and films that have influenced uh, the creation of BoJack Horseman. Uh, so we're going to play a few clips and talk about them. Oh, okay. First is the, the, the groundbreaking uh, 1988 live-action animated hybrid uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And in this scene, the, the human star, Bob Hoskins, Eddie, the private detective, uh, is meeting uh, Jessica Rabbit, the sexy 
cartoon right. uh, that Kathleen Turner voices. You've got me all wrong. You don't know how hard it is being a woman looking the way I do. Yeah, well, you don't know how hard it is being a man looking at a woman looking the way you do. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Now, hearing that rather than seeing it, of course, is different because it's, oh, it's just this guy and this sexy woman. But uh, <laughs> but but it is, I can see why that's on your list. Interspecies, anthropomorphic, yeah, well, uh, so, you know. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is one of my favorite movies of all time. And in fact, I think it is the, maybe the, the first movie that I really loved in, I'm not going to say an adult way because I was, you know, in middle school. Um, but that I would really say like, oh, this is, this is my movie. I really love it and I would dig into it. And I think it really affected so much about the way I see the world and experience the world. There's a lot about comedy in that movie. And, you know, Roger Rabbit talks about how powerful comedy is. Our laugh can be a very powerful thing. Why, sometimes in life, it's the only weapon we have. And it really um, impressed itself upon me. And it's something that I, I really do believe, like the power of comedy and, and, and using comedy as a tool to talk about certain things or, you know, uh, get around certain things um, or approach certain things. Um, I think it's really incredible. I think the movie uh, articulates it very well. And I think for for a long time, uh, you know, in my adolescence, comedy was the only tool I had for communication and, 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 and dealing with the world and dealing with people. I didn't know any other lens in which to do it. Does that uh, indicate that you were, I mean, you had a problematic adolescence and you could only be happy by being funny? I Well, I think problematic might be over... Uh, stating it, but I, you know, I had, um, I had ADHD when I was a kid. I had behavioral problems. Um, I didn't always feel like I, I fit in, uh, which is, you know, somewhat universal. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to imply that I was like some, you know, super out there kid. Right. Of course, on your list of, of influences is The Simpsons. Let's play a clip. I don't think we need to remind people sure. what The Simpsons is, but here's a clip uh, mm-hmm. uh, when from the 90s when Homer uh, discovers Marge is pregnant with baby Maggie. Surprise! Baby shower! Baby shower? You know I haven't told Homer yet, and he'll be home any minute. Oh, really? Man, it's windy as hell out there. Hey, wait a minute. What are all these presents? It looks like you're showering Marge with <laughs> gifts. Hmm. With little tiny baby-sized gifts. Well, I'll be in the tub. <laughs> By the way, congratulations on your new job, Homer. New job? Marge is pregnant? No! <laughs> <laughs> What I love about that clip specifically is it's so funny, um, but is also grounded in a very uh, real situation for this domestic family, uh-huh. right? This this is this is a story about Homer who 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 finally gets his dream job and then realizes he can't uh, keep it because he needs to make more money because his wife is pregnant again, right. um, which is is such a, a, a heartbreaking story on its face. Um, but then they're able to kind of festoon it with jokes. Um, in a way that doesn't undercut it, but actually makes it feel more powerful. Mm-hmm. So for me, I mean, the, the the biggest way The Simpsons has influenced BoJack and and my outlook on comedy, and, and it's influenced so many factors of it. But the biggest is the way they were able to tell sometimes sad stories uh, in ways that didn't 
um, sacrifice comedy and and to tell funny stories in ways that didn't sacrifice character and didn't sacrifice the emotions. Another show on your list uh, that uh, I all wanted to see so badly when it when it came out and never did is this Canadian show called The Newsroom, not the Aaron yeah. Sorkin Ernest uh, yes. HBO series from years later. T- talk about The Newsroom and how you okay. how you stumbled on it. Uh, I want to shout this show from the mountaintops because I feel like people do not know it especially because there's another show called The Newsroom by Aaron Sorkin. Uh, it is very, it's harder to find. But it's a show from the 90s um, by this guy, Ken Finkelman. It's Achilles' heel, or, or or one of the reasons it's not talked about so much, is it is in, in, in many ways, it feels very clearly and heavily influenced by the Larry Sanders show. So it, it is very much in the same vein. It's this very pitch black comedy. Um, I think, you know, for me... I saw the newsroom first. I was exposed to that show. I just ha- it happened. They happened to be re-airing it on PBS when I was in high school, and I became fascinated with it. And it kind of in- injected that kind of pitch black sensibility. But it's great. It's I mean, it's it's hilarious. I it's, about, it's about it. a TV a TV news. Yes. Yeah. So it's about it's about a, it's about a local news station in Canada. Um, and it's it's pitch black satire. You know, a lot of like that. The, the joke we heard earlier from BoJack about the you know people are bummed out about these mass shootings because mm-hmm. it hurts their uh, you know, their their box office, that is, like, directly, um, you know, in line with, with the newsroom sensibility. Well, we're hoping that there's a Canadian dead. I mean, that that's... We're hoping he's dead. Okay, how about this? Perhaps one Canadian was eaten by piranha-like fish. I have a problem with that. I mean, uh, how do we know he was eaten? Perhaps one Canadian may have been eaten by piranha-like fish. Or perhaps one Canadian may have been eaten Hello? by flesh-eating fish. I can live with flesh-eating. Yeah. They are concerned about the news in as far as they're concerned about the ratings for the news. Um, you know, it's these very uh, selfish, myopic people who are kind of, who have this responsibility to inform um, and, you know, and, and affect the conversation. Um, but they are mainly interested in their own bottom lines and everyone's kind of looking out for themselves. Um, and it's just brilliantly crafted satire in that way. And it's, it's, it's bone dry. And that's one of the things I love about it as well. You've convinced me. I, I Seriously, I'm, I'm going to now watch yeah, it, seek it as out. soon as I can. Mad Men yeah. was on your list of uh, shows. Uh, just uh, here, here is a clip from the finale of the first season of Mad Men where Don's pitching Kodak. And this is John Hamm doing that. My first job, I was in-house at a fur company with this old pro copywriter, Greek, named Teddy. And Teddy told me the most important idea in advertising is new. But he also talked about a deeper bond with the product. Nostalgia. Mad Men is not a comedy. And you one sees Don Draper being cynical but serious, and which is he? Do you like that show because Don Draper is kind of bojacky? I love it. I mean, I, I, I think you could... Uh... That's that's the generous way to put it. You might say, "Is Bojack kind of Don Drapery because yeah. you like that show?" Um, and I I adore Mad Men. And I think you know when I think about like, what do I want to do with my show? What do I want this show to be? Um, there's a specific thing that Mad Men made me feel, um, which is that it, it 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 crawled inside of me and kind of wormed inside of me in ways that I did not understand. And it felt like magic. That it wasn't just that I liked it. It felt like it became a part of me while I was watching it. You know, um, another one of my favorite shows is Arrested Development. And um, I, I, which you could also trace the influences to BoJack, obviously. Um, and, and I remember when that was on uh, on Fox, and it wasn't doing well in the ratings. I, it it blew my mind. I couldn't understand why everyone didn't love this show that was so obviously brilliant. And Mad Men was the opposite. That to me, 
I couldn't understand why other people loved it because it felt so personal and mm. so much a part of me and it spoke directly to me. It it, it like it, it ripped my rib cage open and just fed itself directly into my heart. And I think everyone felt that way. And that's what was so amazing about it. And I'm not like Don Draper, really. Like, none of the characters really spoke to me specifically or my experience, but just something about the nakedness of the emotion and the vulnerability about it really kind of wedged its way in. And that is something that we do try to do on BoJack, and I think we do succeed for some people. That some people feel like, oh my God, this show sees me, and this show gets me, and, and is inside <laughs> me in a way. And I don't actually know how we do it. Like, I don't I don't know what the practical steps are for making that, other than knowing that it's, it's a thing that we aim for, and it's a thing that we try to scratch. Right. You're a big star now, and 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 you have this. Oh, Net- thank you. You have this Netflix series, and and it's people it has buzz and critical acclaim, and people love it. Um, given that you have thought a lot these last few years writing this show and overseeing this show about the down dark downside of success and fame in Hollywood, is life getting a little too close to the show for you in any way? Um, no. I mean, I, I, uh, I like to think I have a good head on my shoulders and I'm trying to take it all in stride. I don't know if I will have a great second act or if BoJack will be the thing that I'm remembered for always. I, I would like to think that I can be okay with that and be healthy about that and, and, you know, and go, uh, you know, to a cabin in the woods and, and, and write my novels <laughs> for me that will never be read by anyone, you know, whatever it is. And you do have a good head on your shoulders. Uh, <laughs> Raphael Bob Waxberg, uh, thank you very, very, very much. Oh, thank you. This is so much fun. What a pleasure. Raphael Bob Waxberg is the creator and maker of BoJack Horseman. The show's fourth season is out now on Netflix. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is Louis Mitchell. Our producers are Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bizzari, and our production assistant is Floyd Gillette. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thank you very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360. One of the things that's very interesting about laughter is, in some ways, pretty much everything we think we know about it, and this includes a lot of scientists, is wrong. (laughs) We know so little about how laughter works, it's not even funny. That's next time in Studio 360.